Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The theme that's going to drive you or sort of the question you're trying to answer is pretty much set by the time you're age eight. And you're going to have a really hard time shaking it. Like that's going to be the, the story you need to tell. And uh, I, I really think that it's true. The more I, you know, look at the work I've made and, you know, and working with clients, um, I think there's a great deal of truth to it. And I, a friend of mine is, was an early childhood education specialist and her, I asked her about it and her theory was like seven or eight is sort of what early childhood specialists call the age of reason is sort of where kids see themselves as separate individuals in the world. Like that's the point where that starts to happen. Um, so, you know, something in that separation process builds uh, a template or a theme. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Peter, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me on. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work by way of your publicist. And as we were just joking before uh, we hit record here, everything that I you know, do when it comes to choosing podcast guests is based on personal curiosity. Uh, and your story intrigued me. But before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Oh, wow. That's, that is a very big question. Um, I'm, I'm pondering deep here. Um, I think one thing I learned um, from both of my parents actually was um, the power of education. Uh, we were like really big on school in my family and uh, I'm the youngest of five all my siblings have at least one advanced degree. I have one. Um, we were all pretty good at school. And, uh, you know, I think that was a real value both of my parents instilled. Um, 
And from the standpoint of like, you know, you need to learn, it's incumbent on you and that education is a process you engage in and have to show up for and um, that it's a continuous process as well, that it wasn't just, you know, okay, you graduated from college, you're good, you know, Mm. figure it out from there. Um, I mean, there was a little bit of that, but uh, it was, you know, it was pretty clear we were on our own after college. Um, But, um, but I think, yeah, that's, I would think that's the biggest thing was the power of education. So uh, numerous questions come from that. I, when you mentioned that you're the youngest of five, I'm kind of wishing I had started with the question of your birth order. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that uh, because I, I'm always fascinated by people who come from big families. What is it uh, about your parents that uh, made them the types of people who instilled this you know, sort of need for education? Because I know, you know, having grown up Indian, that's just kind of baked into our culture. You know, right. It's not even something we question. So much so that recently I came across this article about Indian employers, uh, you know, having such an obsession with people with, you know, high status degrees and from elite university that, that it's actually been detrimental to their businesses. But um, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, so why in particular, like, what do you think it is about your parents that made them instill this value of education? Um- I think, you know, this is reaching back. I, I'm 54. Uh, my mother is still alive. She's 92. Um, she and my father both grew up, uh, in the middle of the great depression. And, um, I think had, you know, pretty hard scrabble childhoods. Um, and they were, you know, uh, my father grew up in Chicago and uh, his father was a musician. Um, so, you know, they were not rolling in money during the Depression. Um, my mother's mother was a widow. She had a boarding house. Um, all of the children worked. So I think, um, you know, it was very clear that the way up and the way out was, you know, learn something, have a skill, learn it. and. Um, you know, and then pursue. Um, my father was also um, a veteran. And, you know, so I think like the GI Bill, that was part of it too. You know, he uh, eventually wound up getting his PhD from the University of Chicago. Um, so, you know, he traveled a very far distance uh, in some respects uh, from, you know, inner city kid to PhD. Um but I, I think it was something, you know, about like, you know, you had to figure a way out. If that was your circumstance, you had to figure a way out. And education was the way to do that. Yeah. So when people are in less than ideal circumstances, you know, they're always looking for solutions. Why do you think there are people who don't figure a way out? What do you think it is that prevents them from finding a way out of those types of circumstances? Oh, wow. That's that's a really big question. Um you know, I think there's probably several factors. Um, one of which is just some of it is just luck. I, I mean, yeah. I, 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 and opportunity. I think you know we tend to underestimate that sometimes uh, yeah. as as a factor. Um, and I would think too, some of it is um, modeling and environment. Um, but again, I mean, so much of that is circumstantial too you know if your circumstance is making it impossible for you to get out um you know that's a real thing 
And, you know, I think sometimes we can dismiss that uh, too carefully or, you know, too quickly. Um, So, but I think, you know, the big thing is also kind of some sort of self-belief or, you know, the desire, whatever that, you know, initial desire is, um, you know, something that um, pushes you and, Mm -hmm. you know, gets you moving. And, and that's something that can change too. I, you know, I think sometimes um, I find when I work with clients on projects, like, you know, the desire they start with is become something else as the project evolves and as they grow into it and as they figure it out. Um, Mm. But that energy, you know, whatever that sort of initial energy burst is, I think is really important. And sometimes it's just encouragement too, right? You need people along the way to say, you know, keep going. Um, Because manufacturing that self-belief all the time is really hard to do. And sometimes you just need somebody, you know, saying, you know, I'm here and I think you can do it. Let's just take one more step. Let's see where you get, you know. Yeah. I, I appreciate that you brought up, you know, the factors of luck as well as environment. Uh, I think we tend to gloss over context when it comes to prescriptive advice. I, I was recently reading this book called The Optimist Telescope, and she revisited the Walter Michelle Marshmallow study. And she said, you know, one of the things that that study failed to take into account is context and environment that maybe right. it isn't just willpower that determines whether somebody goes for the marshmallow, but the environment that they're in, that they're raised in, all of that, their culture, all of that determines whether they actually choose the marshmallow or not. Right. And also, you know, somebody just may be really hungry. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a real thing, right? I, you know, uh, if that's the, you know, you're really hungry exactly. and you've, you have the opportunity to eat, you may just go ahead and do that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, okay. Growing up in a family of five, uh, what did you learn about social dynamics, uh, human behavior, and having your voice heard? Um, so there's a fairly sizable age difference in my family. I think I have to quickly do the math here. My oldest sister uh, is 14 years older than I am. Is that right? No, she's going to kill me. Um, 12 years. I, uh, I'll, I'll amend that. Um and my next oldest brother is six years older than I am. So in some ways, I was kind of an only child, you know, because they were all in high school or on their way to college and kind of doing their own thing. Um, you know, what, looking back, I would say one thing uh, I learned or, you know, I mean, it's not a regret per se, but um, I was a pretty good kid. I, like, I didn't, you know, get into a lot of trouble that I can recall, um, I probably could have gotten away with a lot more just because my parents were tired. <laughs> yeah, and that seems um, to be the case. With, I feel like the the second, you know, younger siblings get away with murder in comparison to the older ones, right? And well, and it's also, I think, you know, that's just experience too. Like the parents mm-hmm. are like, okay, he's not really going to hurt himself, so you know, whatever. But um, yeah. but you know, and they were very busy. Both my parents worked, um, you know, so it's that's one of those sort of double edged sword things that on one hand I was kind of left to my own devices in a lot of ways, which was great. Um, on the other hand, that can be, you know, sort of lonely too. Um, and, you know, I think in terms of getting one's voice heard in a large family, um, I think what I learned, you know, in, as a writer, um, you know, was observing 
uh, and having the opportunity just to sort of watch all this other, you know, all these adults do their thing. Um, and I think that's probably the most important thing I learned. Mm. But um, I, I will say this, I just to sort of kind of, you know, complicated a little bit. I had studied with a writing teacher um, at a workshop, uh, the playwright Horton Foote. And Horton said, and this has really stuck with me, which was that for any maker, um, the the thing, the theme that's going to drive you or sort of the question you're trying to answer is pretty much set by the time you're age eight. And you're going to have a really hard time shaking it. Like that's going to be the the story you need to tell. And uh, I I really think that it's true. The more I, you know, look at the work I've made and, you know, and working with clients, um, I think there's a great deal of truth to it. And I, a friend of mine is that was a early childhood education specialist and her, I asked her about it and her theory was like seven or eight is sort of what early childhood specialists call the age of reason and sort of where kids see themselves as separate individuals in the world. Like that's the point where that starts to happen. Um, so, you know, something in that separation process builds uh, a template or a theme. Um, wow. Um, which of the siblings are you closest to and why? Um, I'm close to each of them in different ways. Um, and also through their children. Um, I'm, you know, I love being an uncle. That's, I've got tons of nieces and nephews, all of whom are interesting, accomplished adults now and, all, you know, like starting to get married and build their careers and do all that stuff. Um, so, you know, but I connect to them in different ways. My two brothers are both avid gardeners and, um, I, I live in New York City, but my apartment building has a fairly large garden, which my neighbor Kim and I are the volunteer gardeners. And, um, you know, it's like I'm connecting to my brothers about gardening in the middle of New York City. Go figure. But um, uh, there's that. Um, and I think now we're also sort of connecting, you know, particularly as my mom is 92 and, you know, looking at a lot of sort of end of life issues, you know, um, I think that's something that's, we're really sort of connecting with now too, because partly they're, as they're finished sort of raising their kids and their kids are out in the world, um, you know, it's a different opportunity to to get to know each other now, sort of without that piece of the puzzle too. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm. Um, so you brought up end of life, and uh, I didn't want to let that go. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this. Um, we had Frank Ostaseski here from the Zen Hospice Project. And, uh, you know, I remember telling him that, you know, my great fear was that one or both of my parents would pass before I got married or had kids. And he said, well, don't let that be the reason that you don't spend time with them now. Right. Uh, but I wonder, you know, I think that any one of us can sort of anticipate the fact that we're going to lose a parent, uh, you know, and we're going to have to confront the reality of mortality. But even though you know it's going to happen at some point, when you're thinking about it from the standpoint of sort of imagining this future, how are you processing something like that emotionally? Um, it's kind of a day by day thing. I, you know, I think ultimately, um, you know, whenever I talk to my mother, you know, I always, you know, somewhere in the back of my mind, I think, oh, you know, this could be 
a last conversation. And she's actually doing fairly well, all things considered with her age. Um, but, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, if I say goodbye, like, is that really goodbye? I just recently visited her and it was my first chance to see her post-pandemic. And I hadn't seen her about a year and a half. And, um, you know, and a lot's changed in that space. And, um, you know, but I wanted, it was important to go before it was an emergency or a funeral or, you know, something that required just like dropping everything and just going. Um, so, you know, I think it's something you kind of navigate every day. And, um, you know, when my father died, it was clear probably about three months before he died, like he was nearing the end. Um, and he wasn't hospitalized. He wasn't sick, but he was 88. And, um, you know, you could just sort of tell. And um, knowing that and having that expectation, um, it still came as a great shock when he actually did die. And, um, you know, and that's, I think that's just a human experience, you know, sort of the best preparation is helpful, but, um, you know, you're suddenly cast into a very different world and um, one that you have to learn from scratch in a way. Yeah. It makes me think of the uh, Tim Urban article called The Tail End, where he said, you know, the time you have left with the people that you that matter most to you is actually, you know, far more limited than you realize, like most of it is over. And I, I think every time somebody reads that article, I think it just brings them to tears. It, it makes you sort of treasure that time. And I, I wonder that if, you know, for you, as you've you know been faced with this prospect, uh, as you've gotten older, have you treasured your time with your parents more and more? Um, I do. And I find that um, I, the people, I, you know, I would broaden that circle that it's the people that I spend time with in general, again, particularly coming out of uh, lockdown. Um, you know, I'm a natural introvert. I'm somebody I'm fine with my own company. I don't need to be out and about all the time. Um, but, you know, that sense of closeness and sort of really, you know, wanting to be with people and truly connect with them rather than the sort of just social passing, you know, the number of those relationships that we have. Um, I think that experience has us all kind of reevaluating, you know, many of our relationships and how we show up for people or don't. And, um, you know, it'd be interesting to sort of see where all of that shakes out down the road. Um, Yeah. It's funny because I think that there's a sort of, uh, you know, perception we all have of this sort of mythical date when we're going to have this, you know, sort of seamless magical relationship with our parents. That's completely perfect. But uh, I think that, thing that really struck me most, despite whatever conflict I had with my parents, was uh, I was reading this book by Sudhguru called uh, Inner Engineering. And he tells a story of this brother and sister who were separated in the Holocaust. And the sister yelled at him when they got on a train because he forgot his shoes. And then they were separated at the next stop. And she said, you know, the thing I took away from that was to never leave the site of a conversation having something I would regret later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's really Good advice. Um, hard to do though, right? I yeah, think <laughs> absolutely. Easier said than done, like most Yeah, things. you know, we're all, you know, we all have things that are complicating and complicated. Um, but yeah. I always, you know, I I 
it's something I've been spending some time with in middle age and really sort of looking at where I came from and how I've wound up where I've wound up. And, you know, there's sort of a major reinvention I've been trying to do with my work life and my creative life and sort of, you know, asking a lot of questions about that. And um, the great psychologist James Hillman um, using sort of a Jungian idea, but I think it's really a huge idea and very, you know, one that takes a lot of sitting with. But um, his belief is that, you know, each person gets the specific pair of parents they need to be the person on a soul level that, you know, they're meant to be in the world. And um, that in some way, it's like your parents are chosen for you. Um, And whatever is in that relationship, good, bad, you know, complicated, not complicated, um, if really engaged with, is sort of the things that allows you to be your truest self. Um, So it's that's a really interesting idea to me um, Mm. and one that I've been, you know, sort of spending some time thinking about. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of, of, you know, how you've wound up where you're at, you mentioned that you had parents who prioritized, you know, education and really emphasized the value of it. And you chose a creative path, which sometimes is in conflict with the value of education, at least in the traditional sense. And it definitely was for me having been raised by Indian parents. Uh, So when you you know decide to pursue something creative and you have parents who have such a high you know place such a high value in education what is that conversation like and what did they encourage you to do what did they discourage you from doing if anything uh, and and how did you end up on this trajectory um how much time do we have <laughs> this is going to be like all the time the in six, the world this the six part interview um i you know i came it's interesting i Kate, there was a lot of creativity in my family circle. My father was also a very accomplished uh, pianist and um, had, you know, concertized as a young man. And I, you know, when I grew up, we had his, he still had a seven foot grand piano in the house and he played fairly regularly and would have other musicians over to play chamber music. And, um, you know, so on one hand, he was a suburban dad who commuted to his job. And then there was this sort of very creative element. Um, my mother's brothers are all academics, but they were all writers as well. And each of them wrote several academic books. Uh, one was a philosopher, one was a historian. Um, so that was there. And um, I like to think. Um, you know, sometimes my mom's like to me, I don't know where you got it from. Like, you know, where did, where did you come from? Um, (laughs) but it's not, you know, that's not far removed. That was, you know, daily life and family members. Um, so, you know, I knew that that was something that was possible. And, you know, when I was in graduate school, I had one, you know, my initial thought was like, oh, I will get a PhD and, you know, become an academic. And then, you know, I realized that was not the path that I wanted to be on and that um, having the opportunity to work with other artists and people across disciplines 
suddenly opened up all kinds of possibilities for me and sort of ways of thinking and ways of being in the world. And, um, and I really liked it and I was good at it. Um, but you know, you know, the God's honest truth was my parents were not happy about it. And it was a real source of conflict for a very long period of time. Um, and one that, uh, you know, from their standpoint, I'm sure that was, you know, concern. Um, and, you know, how are you going to support yourself? And, you know, what does that mean for you down the road? Um, so, you know, I understand that. And at the same time, you know, they were proud of some of my accomplishments. Um, I had, I've, written i've written several opera librettos which for anybody who doesn't know what that is that's the text of an opera that's then set to music and then you know that's the thing that gets staged and um you know they were thrilled when my first opera was produced and you know were was at the premiere and have you know been to several other ones um so you know i think it was a, a tricky line for them as well and one they didn't quite know and manage but i you know i for a long time i found a sort of compromise solution in a way i've owned my own business as a floral designer in new york for 20 years so that was kind of an accidental career it was not a plan i you know i have a graduate degree from johns hopkins to be a writer and that was you know the plan and then 20 years later i'm sort of semi-retiring as a floral designer. Um, but that was a very creative job. And I, you know, got to do all sorts of really interesting projects. Um, most of my clients were in the world of live television. So I got to be part of this really big machine and see how things happened on the ground and, you know, do these really cool projects with really talented, smart people and learn all sorts of things about lighting and working with color and, um, you know, how things are photographed and, um, and they're, you know, learning the business as well, just the business end of it, having to develop that skill, um, you know, because, you know, you're dealing with pro product that's being shipped internationally and hiring staff and budgets and planning a job and, you know, all of sort of those big questions. Um, so in a strange way, it was kind of, you know, a good balance. And it's a funny thing, you know, just culturally, the minute like something's on television, you're legit instantly. Like mm. suddenly all of those questions kind of <laughs> fall away. You're like, oh, yeah, you're on TV. I understand that. And you're yeah. kind of good, good to go. Um, so, you know, in some ways that kind of took a lot of the heat off of it because it was a very visible success. And... um and, you know, I got to do some fun things along the way and learn some really great things, too. Um, but there was, you know, much more that I also wanted to do. And now I'm trying to sort of get my arms around. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. So two questions come from that. Uh, you mentioned that you were at this moment in grad school where you realized getting a PhD wasn't what you want to do, even though you thought that it was what you were planning to do. And a lot of people would actually go get the PhD, even though it's not what they wanted to do. Why do you think that is? Um, some of it was financial. Um, I was already, you know, taking on a significant, and this is 1990. So even then the debt load was very different than what it is for people now. Um, but, you know, I had a significant debt from my master's degree and the thought of taking on even more debt for something I really wasn't convinced about, didn't seem like a good plan. Um, and I also, I think the main thing was that I, having worked with other people making art in some way, a lot of it was theater, a lot of it was, and I was writing daily for a, a newspaper in Baltimore. Um, 
like things I could see things were happening. There were results like, oh, I actually can do this. And people are, you know, giving me space to do it. And, um, and I seem to be doing it well. Nobody's asked me to stop or said to get out. So, um, so I think just sort of having that kind of immediate feedback that it was viable um, took a lot of that pressure off. Like, oh, I, you know, I wasn't twiddling my thumbs like, well, what am I going to do now? You know, I think that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of where it's, I think trouble can set in for people like, well, I should just go ahead and do this thing because it makes sense. Um, you know, um, it's a huge commitment. Anybody, you know, who's gotten a PhD, you know, that's years, right? Uh, there's not a quick way to do that. So um, you have to really, it's like getting married. Like you have to know you really want to do it, I think. Yeah. So the the follow-up to that is you mentioned that initially this did cause some conflict with your parents. And uh, we have a lot of parents who listen to the show. For parents who are listening, whose kids are showing interest in potentially, you know, artistic or creative careers, what would you tell them about talking to their kids about pursuing a career in the arts? Um, there's a couple ways to have that conversation. And I think, you know, the main one is to not start from the like, well, what are you going to do? You know, how is that going to work? Um, there's, you know, cause immediately that puts somebody on the defensive and, um, and they may have, you know, there's probably not an answer yet to that. I think any, um, creative career, there isn't a linear path in the way that there is, you know, my oldest sister is a psychiatrist. My oldest brother is a chemist. My next brother is a judge. My other sister is an attorney. Like they have pretty clear career marking things. Um, But even if you asked them, their path is not linear. I mean, there are very few people whose work life is linear uh, if you actually dig into it. Um, but, you know, they do have clearer markers. Um, I think some of that is changing, though, too, just because of the digital revolution. Um, you know, it's one thing I envy all of my nieces and nephews um, for is they don't really expect to be doing the same job their whole life anyway now. Um, I think mm-hmm. they have a very different expectation and that there's nothing wrong with doing something for five or six years and then trying something else or, you know, moving in a different direction. And culturally, I think there is sort of greater support for that than there used to be. I, you know, and I, you know, and it's important to remember again, my parents growing up in the great depression, like, you know, if you had a job, that was the most important thing. Right. And you didn't mess that up because you didn't want to end up poor again. Um, so I think, you know, it's a, important to look at the why part of it like and um we could take this in a different direction um and because it's a question i have just in general um which is sort of the how we culturally value creative work or don't and um and how in some ways much like our economy now it's kind of a winner-take-all game like you know yep a certain number you of people get to succeed and, then, and that's it. Um, yeah. But just as a little thought experiment here, um, there's very few other professions outside of the art. And when I say art, I don't mean just like painting, but sort of any mm. of the, you know, creative, quote unquote, creative professions um, 
you know, if we did a little thought experiment, nobody says to an attorney, um, while you're learning and mastering your career, you should also do another job full time at the same time <laughs> to succeed. Yeah. Um, you know, or nobody says that to a surgeon, you know, where you have to learn how to master something. And I think people forget um, with creative professions that there is, you know, a high level of mastery that you have to attain. And that takes time and practice and experience and opportunity. And, um, and I'm not against day jobs. I've had day jobs. So I, I don't want to discount them because you can learn an awful lot, which can inform your creativity. Um, but, you know, in the same way, uh, you know, a piano player has to practice a lot. And, um, you know, or I have some friends who are professional singers, um, you know, so if they work a day job all day and then they try to practice at night, they're exhausted, their body's not working the way it's supposed to, you know, they're as highly trained athletes as any football player or track runner. Um, and they're already sort of operating at a loss um, because they're so physically tired. Um, so it's just, it's an interesting question. I, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is. And I, you know, I hope that someday that would change. Um, but, you know, I, I've had this conversation um, with somebody on a, a business podcast and he said, you know, like, well, you know, all artists should learn how to be like business people. And I said, you know, I don't really, I, you know, I think that's a stereotype that's not necessarily true. Um, if you know any any gig musicians, mm -hmm. like, they are hustlers. They know how to hustle and yeah. manage their time and organize their time and sort of, you know, find the next job. And, um, you know, they're kind of geniuses at business in a way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the most successful creators don't operate just like artists. They also think like owners. Right. And I think, you know, that's sort of where I, that's the kind of the space where I want to be, or at least have that conversation, because I think, you know, we've made that a very binary cho choice culturally. And um, it's not true. It's never been true. Uh, you know, if you look historically, like the great visual artists like Michelangelo or Leonardo, um, you know, they had studios, they had assistants, they were dealing with supply chain questions, they were dealing with materials that were hard to get that, you know, somebody had to source from Afghanistan. I think it's, you know, the color lapis lazuli, um, all those paintings of the Virgin Mary with her beautiful blue mantle, like, you know, that came from a mineral that could only be found in Afghanistan and, you know, then had to be pulverized. And, you know, that's not a that's not just something like you can just sort of like, oh, I'll figure it out. You know, um, there's a lot of very specific questions to sourcing that. Um, so that's, you know, that that's always been there. And I, you know, I sort of think like, let's just, it, it's, it's a binary that's not true. And I don't think has ever been true. And I, you know, if I have, I have several missions in life, but that's one I'd like to break down because I, it's just never been my experience. You know, I, I'm so glad you brought this up. I think you kind of read my mind and I, I really appreciate that you brought up this winner takes all, you know, issue because, uh, there's an article on the Harvard business review about the fact that it was written by a woman who started a venture capital firm specifically to invest in artists called Atelier Ventures. And uh, she, the, the article is titled the creator economy has no middle class or the creator economy needs a middle right. class. And 
the the thing that I think that I'm finding as I explore this subject is effectively what now I'm describing as digital inequality. Uh, to your point, winner takes all. If you look at crowdfunding platforms, typically, you know, things like Patreon, it's a small percentage of people on Patreon that get the lion's share of revenue from mm-hmm. being part of Patreon. Uh, and you layer on top of that, you know, this sort of uh, economy, you know, attention economy where everybody has access to these tools, resources, distribution channels. We had William Dershowitz here who wrote a book called The Death of the Artist. And right, he said yeah. that, you know, the thing that young people and, and particularly creatives don't realize is that um, this is actually really hard. And I think that when you have this world where everybody has access to all of these different things, it raises the bar for quality. Uh, but there's a sort of landscape of this economy that I think people tend to really not quite understand because it's presented as this sort of golden age of opportunity. But that's so nuanced because, you know, what William said was that you know, basically it's available to everybody, the keyword being everybody. And you started all of this, you know, an era that predates social media. And we've talked quite a bit about craft. What do you think the the effect has been on the importance of craft and mastery uh, as a byproduct of the digital era? Like what have been the bad things that have come from it and what have been the good? Oh boy, this is a really great question. Um, And I, I just, to all the listeners out there, I promise you, I'm not like the old man yelling at the cloud. I, I promise you, I, I, I'm not that person in the world. But, um, but you know, I, I am old enough that I watched that whole system collapse. Um, so when I was in school, I was, you know, educated for a certain structure to succeed in the world and that there were certain ways of getting there. And at the time, if you were a creative, there was still the possible, there was a middle tier um, where a lot of creative people could work and still have some semblance of a middle-class life. You know, like you could be a teacher and write your novel and a publisher would support what they used to call like the mid-list books so that there was some option between, you know, the poetry volumes that sold three volumes, three copies, and then Stephen King. And then there were sort of the people who didn't sell a huge number of books, but they kept publishing them and they had a fairly reliable audience that would keep purchasing their books. Um, Same thing with recording uh, artists. Um, And same thing with theaters or opera companies or sort of any performing arts organization. There was a sort of mid-tier where people could have fairly solid careers and your only choice wasn't the Met or the church basement, you know. And um, all of that sort of fell apart in my lifetime. And, uh, you know, and that gap has only widened um, and, you know, the opportunities in some ways have gotten smaller. Um and I, you know, I'm of a couple minds about this um, because there is something good about the decentralization of it as well. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's worth mentioning. Um, and I think there is something to be said for the DIYness of what's possible now. Um, but the fact of the matter is, people still need support, right? It still takes time to make something. It still takes space and materials and um 
you know, we have a lot of amazing tools that we can do things with quickly and get good results with. But, um, you know, those tools are not inexpensive. Uh, You know, people still need support. And, um, you know, and I think the biggest problem, or at least what I observe is, it's kind of like you get one shot now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're either a big success or you're not. And it used to be, I would look like if we use the example of like popular music, um, you know, a record label would invest in an artist over a very long period of time. And, you know, a singer songwriter could put out a whole bunch of different kinds of albums and experiment and try different things. And, you know, some albums worked and some albums didn't. Um, but they still had a source of support and a company trying to like build a larger career over a period of time. Um, I think if you look at most pop music stars now, um, they have a pretty short shelf life and it's very hard to sustain a career. And, you know, the model has shifted now that it's all about touring and, you know, getting revenue that way. But, um, I'd be hard pressed to think of some artists um, who have that same sort of luxury of developing over time and experimenting and making mistakes, um, you know, cause maybe you get two or three albums now and if the third one's no good, you're kind of done, right? You better get a talk show or hoped that, you know, you became some part of, you know, multi-level corporation where you had to make up line or perfume or some sort of branding, something. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, it, that's very problematic, uh, I think. Uh, yeah. Doesn't that create I, a conflict for mastery? Yes, absolutely. Because if you're, if your only focus is on finding the funding for your art, um, you know, you're not making your art. Um, and I, you know, it's tricky because I, we have so sort of many kind of complicated, messed up ideas about uh, these things. You know, I, money isn't bad in and of itself. I think, you know, again, going back to this sort of false binary of like business people are good because they understand money and they know how to make money and artists are flaky because they don't understand money. And um, Oscar Wilde said, you know, um, whenever he was with bankers, they only wanted to talk about art and whenever he was with artists they only wanted to talk about money and um, <laughs> yeah I, I had a version of that where i, I think it was in uh, anthony DeMello's book he said you know anytime he met a prostitute she only wanted to talk about god and anytime he met a priest they only wanted to talk about sex there you go so <laughs> so i guess the grass is always greener and you know that must be just an eternal human truth but um yeah. but i you know that's a real pressure but it's it's interesting sort of the judgment that we place on it, because I would say like a startup company looking for funding, everybody's like, cool, that's great. You know, they're onto something. But um, <laughs> if an artist is saying like, I need funding, everybody's like, oh, you know, self-indulgent, flaky, you know, all that sort of pejorative stuff. And I, you know, I'm painting with a very broad brush there, but yeah, we look at it very differently. And I, you know, again, the question is, why is that? Both people are engaged in making something personal that they want to put in the world. So what's the difference? Hmm. I'm so glad you brought that up. It seems like we must be really on the same wavelength right now because I literally was going to you know, ask you about that because to your point, right, when 
somebody like Paul Graham decides to invest, he can say, okay, I can invest in a company like Dropbox, you know, which has the potential for a billion dollar return, or I can go right. find, you know, some artist who might produce something of value for society, something that helps a lot of people, but won't, you know, give me a return like investing in a Dropbox would. And what I wonder is how do you think that we create an ecosystem that supports artists the way that we support startups when you don't have this financial incentive? Well, um, I think some of that is kind of, we have to get to kind of a foundational idea, which, um, you know, again, I don't know if this is an American thing. Maybe you can, uh, contrast this with your experience um uh, as an indian um but you know our cultural idea and you know god bless the puritans but you know is that somehow art is always frivolous or it's not useful or it doesn't have um concrete value because it's its effects are indirect and in not necessarily immediate and they're often unintentional. I, you know, um, I've had the experience of writing a piece and seeing it produced and sitting in a theater with a thousand people, all of whom are taking that in, in their own individual ways. And what I think I was trying to do in that piece, um, may not be what they're getting out of it. And I've had plenty of conversations after a production with people in the audience, you know, and my thought is like, huh, I didn't expect that. Or, you know, I can see how you got there, but that was not what I was thinking or, um, you know, so you, as, as a maker, you put something out in the world and then you kind of just, it has to sort of, you have to let go of what it means and trying to control that. Um, so I think, you know, there's always that sense of sort of art having to justify itself, um, and, or prove itself. Um, and, you know, I mean, interestingly, if you looked at, uh, you know, a drug company developing a drug, um, you know, how much of that is based on failure or not succeeding or not getting quite the right answer. And I think, you know, process-wise, it's the same set of questions. Um, and they may be working towards slightly different ends. Um, but, you know, there's, for some reason, it's okay to have a period of uselessness in one arena and in another arena that can be looked at as sort of, you're just again, being frivolous or self-indulgent. Um, okay. I, you know, I, 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 in recent experience, I am a dedicated mentor at the new museum in New York city. And they have a program called new Inc. Um, where they take about 80 fellows every year and give them, a workspace for a year and then all kinds of training and each fellow gets their own individual mentor for a year to sort of work through their project. And um, New Inc. describes itself as an incubator for art, design, and technology. So not everyone there is making art um, and not everyone there is interested in, you know, making something to end up in a gallery. Um, there's a lot of really, you know, amazing technological experiments and sort of things to reimagine 
community engagement or social justice or business um, and other models of having creative work out in the world. Um, and I think there's something really interesting there. Just it's part of the reason I, I love being there is I think they're trying to sort of solve that question or at least engage with it in a very deep way of how how things are supported and what what their outcome is in the world um you know and it's it's an age-old question right i mean if you just i just went to see at the metropolitan museum was um a portrait exhibition of the medici family and you know so the medicis in florence were the great bankers and the great power brokers of their day and you know they hired every great artist they could get their hands on to, you know, on one hand, glorify them, but on the other hand, there was an, also an element of, um, they felt that it reflected on them as rulers if there was an environment of creativity or humanism, that there was this space for investigation and sort of making things new. And that was sort of independent of, I need a beautiful portrait of me, you know, asserting my power. Um, you know, it's messy. It's complicated. Those lines are not clear. Um, but I think, again, painting with a very broad brush, there was a, a sense of a bigger platform that... Um, there was some other larger investigation that was happening beyond immediately glorifying their abilities and power and wealth. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned sort of, you know, culturally, like I, I think I wrote this in, in one of my books. I said, you know, art that rewards uh, the average creator long after the uh, average person quits is admired, but it's rarely encouraged. And that at least has been my experience in, in Growing up in the Indian culture, I, I joke that I think Indians basically think that the books they read and the movies they watch fall from the sky right. <laughs> uh, because they forget that, hey, by the way, somebody went and you know created this thing. Uh, and it's funny because it's a culture that produces a lot of art oh, right. know, between yeah. movies yeah. And, and music and all sorts of things. But very, very rarely is it something that Indian parents will encourage their kids to do, at least in my parents' generation. And this is something that I finally came to terms with. I, you know, to the point that you were making about your parents having grown up in the Great Depression, I understand why my parents have that perspective because they saw a world in which life outcomes were binary. There was no in between. It's either poverty or security. Right. But, you know, to speak to your point, have you ever asked them sort of like, who do you think actually made all that stuff? Like, how did no. that happen? Yeah, it's funny because my parents are both big movie movie buffs you know they've introduced us to so much art growing up they one thing funny enough my dad despite being a college professor doesn't read books i've never seen the man read a book in his life just for okay. leisure uh, which is really strange but uh yeah it's it's one of those things like i think they have a great respect for artists um my dad you know handed me a, a walkman when i was i think eight years old with michael jackson's thriller and i played it until it stopped working so right. it was clear that he saw the value of art in that way but i think to your point you know the value of art versus the value of becoming a doctor no comparison right and yet both tend to the soul at the end of the day um yeah 
And um, I mean, and it's a funny thing too, because I also want to, in undoing that binary, um, you know, from the artist standpoint, there can be a lot of stuff that gets in the way of sort of, well, you're, you know, I'm so special because I'm an artist or I have this extra sensitivity or, you know, I have all this extra stuff, um, which, you know, may or may not be true. Um, but, I, you know, on one hand, I, you know, I wish we could all sort of look at it as something that's very special and then kind of not special at all, or it's just, you know, part of what we do, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're creatures who make things and we're creatures who look to objects or music or something to direct our attention elsewhere or to find out that we're not alone. Um, and that's something, you know, we all share as human beings. Um, and I, I think, you know, that sort of halo or, you know, around art um, kind of, you know, makes people afraid of it at the same time. It certainly makes people afraid of their own creativity at the same time, because then it's like, oh, you know, I can't really, I'm not really creative or I don't, you know, um, you know, at the end of the day, you're just making stuff up and, yeah. you know, it works or it doesn't. And, um, you know, and then you get back to work the next day. And I think it's important to sort of take some of that mystery. I'm a big fan of mystery. I think mystery is very underrated these days. But um, but we can take some of that mystery off, too, um, because I think that also helps feed this binary, which is not true. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I think we were talking earlier about sort of you having been part of, uh, you know, the world of doing creative work, pre-social media, pre-sort of internet. And one thing that uh, I wondered now, you know, one of the things that I think has happened as a byproduct of all of this is that we have this almost, you know, sort of false obsession with fame and attention. And the thing that makes it even worse is the fact that we can get attention without actually accomplishing anything. And it's really easy to confuse attention with accomplishment. And so I wonder, you know, as you've watched people that you've worked with, uh, one, what has made them successful and what is it that allows them to thrive? And then two, as you've gone, you know, through your creative life, how has your personal definition of creative success evolved? Um, you're asking some really good, big, hard questions here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just asking the things that no, I'm personally I, I, curious about. Yeah, These no, are the I, things I, that I, I want to know. Like I, I jokingly I, I, say, I'm wrestling with my own demons here. Right? Yeah, no, we all are. Uh, no, these are great questions. I, I'm enjoying it very much. Um, it, you know, a couple things. I think, you know, pre-social media, I think it was a lot easier in some ways to make art because you still had space to fail um, privately. Um, I think, you know, that not because everybody publishes their stuff so quickly now, um, it's a lot easier to sort of put incomplete work out uh, and thinking something is complete when it's not. Um, and I think, again, sort of there used to be a sort of a little bit more luxury of time, um, to sort of work at something and, you know, and that can make you crazy too. You don't want to be like the perfectionist who's like, you can only release the one thing when it's perfect because nothing's ever perfect. But, um, 
But I think, you know, particularly from a writing standpoint, um, we live in a great age of the unedited product. Um, and I think most of what we see, read, you know, and I would all benefit from another draft or another pass um, or some time away <laughs> and then coming back to it. Um, you know, so in that effort to sort of just like get content out all the time, and I'm sure that's something you wrestle with as a podcast producer and with all your many projects that you have going on, um, you know, that need to produce. Um, but, you know, and that's the question, is it, is it just to get as much stuff out as you can, or is it better to get good things out sort of maybe a little more slowly, um, but things that have the potential to be more lasting and more clearly made? Um, I find when I work with clients, the ones who succeed, um, and they all succeed, I, you know, I, 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 I never have any doubt going into a project with a client that they will get where they want to get. Um, and I have, you know, they're generally very passionate and motivated, um, but they're willing to hang in there and they're willing to sort of see a process through and, you know, and it's a struggle. It's hard sometimes. And I, you know, I struggle with it myself. I'm a maker and, um, you know, I just, I've been working on something where I really thought I was near the finish line with it. And, um, and I was consulting with a photographer. It's a photography project I've been working on. And he's like, well, you know, I think you could get a little bit more out of your tools. You know, you're not, you could dig a little deeper in with them. And I was like, no, you know, <laughs> I think I just finished the first draft. That was what was the end, not the project was end ending. Um, so I, you know, the, I, speaking to this question of mastery and, time, I think, you know, often we're just, things are just put out too early and too quickly often. And, you know, look how many people get in trouble on social media because had they waited a day or 10 hours, you know, to not publish that first thought that popped in their head, um, they may not have had the problem that they have. Um, so, you know, what's the, you know, think before you speak. Um, there is some wisdom to that. Uh, and. Uh, and I think, you know, that sort of speaks to a sort of false idea that we have about creativity, which is, you know, that bolt of inspiration hits and then like the thing just happens and it comes out and it's done rather that, um, for that bolt of inspiration to hit, you kind of have to hang out for a while too, um, that there is a lot of sort of wondering and trying and sort of like, maybe it's this, maybe it's not, I don't know. And you know, being able to keep going with it, um, you know, making the conditions for that inspiration to hit. Um, and inspiration also has to be sustained. Um, you know, you can't, we've, I, I think we've all had the experience of like the one thing that we just sort of comes to us and we work quickly, but generally most things you have to, you know, wrangle with for a while. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the trick is how do you sustain that and that commitment and that kind of love and devotion to a project? Um, yeah. 
Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really amazing and thought provoking. I, I love conversations like this because they just, you know, raise more questions than give us answers, which is what I've been known to do to people. Good. No, that's uh, great. I feel the same way, right? That's yeah. really, that means it's, you know, something's alive. Yeah. Well, I have one last question for you, which sure. is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, it really is what is most personal. Um, and I think, you know, it's the great truism, right? That if you want to describe something universal, you do it as specifically as you can. And, you know, it's the, it's the choosing of the specific is really the most personal thing. And, um, you know, that's what makes the work your work. Um, and, and I, you know, I think that's true across the board. Um, you know, that's how we recognize a great singer, right? There's something very distinct in somebody's voice and a color that only they have. Um, or a poet, you know, only has a certain a way of working with language or a painter has a way of working with color. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, the, what's the deed of the show Sunday in the Park with George by Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine? There's, mm, it's, I don't know. It's, a, it's about the painter George Seurat and the making of the painting Sunday on the Island of La Grande Jatte. And there's a beautiful song at the end, and it's just a very, you know, short, compact lyric. And I'm going to try my best not to misquote it, but it's, the artist is sort of full of doubts and, you know, wants to give up. And um, his sort of muse says to him, you know, anything you do, let it come from you, then it will be new. And I think that's, you know, the best, simplest advice we can all use. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights uh, with our then wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? Um, I invite anybody to reach out to me on my website, pmkcreativityguide.com. Um, I offer a free hour conversation about your project or where you might be stuck or where you where you are transitioning something um i'd love to talk to people so please say hello um you can also find me on instagram at the creativity guide and then if you're interested in my own creative work you can find me at petermkrask.com and petermkrask on instagram awesome and for everybody listening we'll wrap the show with that Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.